The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. So what's the purpose of business? The most narrow answer to this question is clear, to maximize profits for shareholders. Put another way, companies exist to make money for the people who own them. But personally, I take a broader view. I think businesses have a much broader set of stakeholders. Their customers, their employees, the communities in which they exist. And sometimes good business means making a decision on a longer horizon, one that will benefit more people, even at the expense of immediate returns. One of the most outspoken people I know on this topic is Mark Benioff. Mark runs Salesforce, a software company that he founded 21 years ago, and it's been wildly profitable. But Mark has always thought beyond shareholders. So our employees are stakeholders, our customers are stakeholders, the homeless in our city is stakeholders, the planet is a stakeholder. So look, what I'm saying is we've had a great shareholder return, we've had a great stakeholder return. These things have to work together in a modern company. I've known Mark as long as I've reported on tech, and I asked him on the show because he's lived through an interesting chapter in the evolution of Silicon Valley. I mean, this is a guy who got a job at Apple as a college kid because he complained to them. But also, Mark has come out of this with a big vision for what business can achieve for humanity. And I want you to hear how he thinks about this. Here's Mark. Well, Jesse, this is not our first interview. Isn't that right? I mean, I think back over so many years of us being together, so many different forums and opportunities and discussions and programs. And you'll remember that 21 years ago when we started the company, we started on three principles, a new technology model. We call that the cloud, a new business model. We call that subscription and new philanthropic model which is where we put 1% of our equity, our profit, our time into a foundation. And we knew that that would scale when the company scaled. It was very easy at the time when we started. We had no equity profit at the time, but now you can see the company has significant market cap, more than 50,000 employees, and um, incredible product line. So, you know, we've had a great shareholder return, more than 5,000% since we went public. But we've also had a great stakeholder return. We've been able to give away hundreds of millions of dollars, more than $120 million to our local public schools. We run almost 50,000 nonprofits and NGOs on our service for free. I think it would be easy to say about Salesforce, well, but the company has been extremely successful. So of course you can do these things. They're byproducts of the success. I'd love to hear you think a little bit about how you were thinking about this at the beginning. Well, I think that, you know, in my previous job, I just realized that business has to be more than just building products and selling products. I mean, what are we doing every day with our lives? What what is life all about? If it's not about being happy and enjoying ourselves and giving back, then I don't know what life is. So when I organize around those three ideas that I want to enjoy myself, I want to create value for others, I want to be able to give back. I want to have fun. Then when I'm creating a company, then I'm just saying, okay, these are the kind of things that I want to do. You know, this is 
you know, quite selfish. I don't want to work in a company that's just about building and selling products. That's it. That's all we're going to do. We have all of this resource. Can't we do more with it? And I think for every company that is true. And I think that today there are more companies for sure that are doing this stakeholder capitalism that we call it than ever before. Even the business roundtable has now said the purpose of a company, the purpose of a company is to improve the state of the world. Well, we agree that the business of business is not business, which is what Milton Friedman said, that the business of business is improving the state of the world. That we all, and by the way, this isn't just about business. This is about us individually with our own lives, our own careers, our families. That's our job while we're on this planet for this brief period of time is to improve the state of the world, repair the state of the world. That's why we're here. So, of course, that has to be reflected in these things that we create called businesses. So you were, you were an, always an entrepreneur, right? I mean, you were starting companies in high school. When I was in high school, computers were just kind of starting to come out. I really like computers. I bought myself a little computer with the help of my grandmother. I mean, she was just so great. Like, computer was like $500. It was a Radio Shack Model 1. And I started to kind of teach myself how to do it every day after work. And, uh, you know, obviously I was going to school, then I work and I go across the street, wait for, you know, uh, my parents to come and pick me up and bring me home. And um, I started to be able to write some software. I'm like, wow, this is really incredible. I couldn't believe it. And then my high school got some terminals to their uh, comp mini computer set up next to the math lab. And I went in there and a lot, a lot of the same concepts I was able to replicate there. And I'm like, whoa, there is something really cool happening here. And I started to buy a couple books. I tried to teach myself. I started writing software and I sold my first piece of software called How to Juggle to Sea Load Magazine in Goleta, California for like $75. But I was in the software business and I was excited. I think I was about 14 or 15 years old. And then I kind of had the bug where I was like, I think this is an idea. I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm not going to be a lawyer. No, I'm a software person. I really like this. This is fun. Mark Benioff is among a group of tech's founders who came of age at a special moment in history and at a unique place in the country. Yes, he was a techie. Yes, he was a natural born salesperson for sure. But Mark also grew up in the Bay Area at a time when Steve Jobs was still doing his very first tour of duty at Apple, when Silicon Valley was just taking shape. I think I went to the West Coast Computer Fair like once. You have to remember, like, I would go to these shows, they wouldn't let me in because I wasn't old enough. <laughs> so, like, I went to CS, I had to, like, sneak in. These were, I, this was a hostile environment for young teenagers but yes, those people were on around me. And I remember like one of my first jobs uh, after writing my software, I got a job at Computerland in Belmont selling Apple II computers. And I was like, whoa, I am learning a lot. My math teachers at Burlingame High School were amazing. And then they were like, well, Mark, uh, you know, how do these computers work? I ended up selling them computers. <laughs> they were teaching me math and I was able then to use the math in my software and then it was just a you know virtuous cycle, and uh, I started recruiting my friends. And by the time I left high school, I had written like ten pieces of software that were you know being sold at 
uh, in the software industry. So I, you know, I was hooked. I was like really loving it. So when you, when you finished college, you joined Oracle and you were at Oracle for a good long time and you had a very successful run at Oracle. And then you started a company that competed with Oracle. Tell me the story of how Salesforce got started. Well, there was one little intermission that you missed, which is when I was in college, you know, I had this software company brought into college, and then I saw this commercial for Apple's Macintosh in January of 1984. You know, the famous commercial with the lady with the sledgehammer. And I called Apple. I'm like, can I can I build software for that? And I talked to Guy Kawasaki, and he's like, yes, you can do it. And I ended up buying a couple of Macs, and we we're supposed to be able to hook them up. And then I was an assembly language programmer, and we were supposed to write the assembly language and basically debug and link and then compile on the other one, and it didn't work. And I called them up and said, you know, I'm in college. I'm 18 years old. I'm barely hanging on here financially. I'm trying to put myself through college, writing software. I just bought these computers, and your uh, Macintosh 68,000 development system assembly language software system does not work. What are you going to do about it? And he said, how'd you like to have a job? And I said, well, sure. And he's like, when can you start? I'm like, well, school is over. And it was like my sophomore year, I think, in school. And I went down there and they gave me a cube. Steve Jobs was walking around. There was a pirate flag on the roof. There was a motorcycle in the lobby. I'm like, I have made it. <laughs> this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. You know, yep. it was an amazing moment, you know, and you really felt like you were in some, hap the history was happening around you. And it influenced me very deeply. You know, I'm a su super young. I'm in the middle of college. And this is all happening. When my direct manager is this incredible person, Scott Canaster. And then I wrote a piece of software called Raid on Armok, which was a video game about Apple blowing up IBM. And I showed it to him. He's like, no, no, you can't do this. <laughs> and I'm like, well, nobody told me. And he's like, well, I need to be more directive, I guess. And then you need to write examples. You need to show people how to write. So, oh, okay, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I will do that, sir. And then, so I ended up writing these example programs for the uh, assembly language system. And then my phone rang one day, and it was one of the directors of Apple, Henry Singleton. And he's like, oh, I'm using your examples, and I'm writing a chess game. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll help you. And he's like, do you ever come down to Los Angeles? I'm going to go back to college. Well, I'm going to USC. All right, well, come over and see me. You know, I'm in Bel Air. All right, yes, sir. And so my, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm hooked. This is the software industry. This is exciting. And then, you know, I wrote some Macintosh software. And then finally, when I graduated USC, I went to work for Oracle. Wow. I'm glad we didn't skip that chapter. <laughs> so you joined Oracle. This idea of software as a service was not widely understood. And one of the things that you really, you, Mark, not even the company, but you did very well, was that you created the story that helped the rest of us understand what software as a service is. And of course, that idea has gone on to expand well beyond software to sort of describe a way of business working in today. So 
take me back to when you were trying to figure out how to tell people what Salesforce was. All we were really building was a website. And I think that when I just explained that they just could not put two and two together, you know, that's where we really kind of had to come up with a narrative on, hey, this is software as a service, you know, this is database as a service, this is, you know, this is everything as a service. And then people started to go, oh, okay, yeah, this is just time sharing. And then people say, well, don't talk about time sharing. That was a bad experience. And then the person who really changed everything, well, Jeff Bezos, when he wrote Amazon, you know, or you look at eBay, Pierre Omidar, that ease of use, that simplicity that you could just point your browser and all of a sudden you had all this functionality. Well, I remember being in my office at Oracle in 1994, 1995 and going, uh-oh, this is really big and I can't get my head around it. And then I worked on that for a while. And honestly, what happened to me was I got quite stuck emotionally. Like I started to have these crazy ideas, but I have to tell you, I had a strong internal feeling that it wasn't the right time. So I spent more time working at Oracle. And then finally, in in uh, I would say the middle of 98, I'm like, I just can't stay here anymore. This is a great company. Larry is amazing. I'm learning a ton, but I need to get out there and I need to be an entrepreneur. And the, of course, I always was a software entrepreneur and I had this dream almost. And then I met this incredible person, Parker Harris. And I'm like, I can partner with him and I can create a company because I know what this is like. And Parker and I started Salesforce March 8th, 1999 in my apartment in San Francisco. We rented the rented a little place next door on Montgomery Street. And we set up shop. We ran our network. That was the time you had to have a local area network. There wasn't Wi-Fi and all of this. And um, our data center was the closet. And we had two other guys with us, Frank Dominguez and Dave Molinoff. And then we started hiring a couple people. Larry said, you could hire three people from Oracle, any three you want, but that's it. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll take this person, this person, and this person. And the three of us plus these founders, we kind of pulled it all together and we had a little company and it was like incredible. And then Nobody really understood what we were doing, except one person who I give a lot of credit to, a journalist named Don Clark. Oh, yeah. With and the journal. At the journal. And he, we knew, I knew him from the Chronicle. And he wrote an article for the journal. And it basically said, software goes online. And we were the last paragraph in the article. And he said, yes, Mark Benioff has quit his job at Oracle to start Salesforce because he's going to bring business applications online. And he went through all the list of software, and he was prophetic and visionary and knowing that this was a front page story. We hadn't really announced our company. We put a website up that day. We got 500 leads. I'm like, oh, boy, we're in business. Let's go. Well, so, Mark, as I listen to you talk, it's very clear that you had the technical ability. It's very clear that you had the entrepreneurial ability. But you keep referencing in different ways intuition. How critical is intuition to your business success? Well, I think intuition is extremely important. I had the idea of how to do it, but there's another part of intuition, which is when to do it. So you want to look at what do you want, okay? 
which is this is my outcome. This is exactly what I want to achieve right now. Everyone needs to be able to do that personally, professionally, for your project, whatever it is. Write down what are the 10 or 20 words? What is your outcome? But as part of that, you got to get clear what is the right moment to do it. And when you're doing something completely new, like what we're talking about, you're going to have to pick your moment also. Because the powerful thing about changes in software is it wasn't just a change in the software model, software service. It was a change also in the business model. It's the two things combined. That was the power. That's what could create a company like Salesforce to take on an established company. When the business model changes and the technology model changes, that's when real transformation in our industry happens. And um, that's why Salesforce is what it is today. We'll be right back. When we return, Mark describes a time that things really came apart at Salesforce. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. My guest today is Mark Benioff, the founder and CEO of Salesforce. You know, startups, they almost always encounter near-death moments. And these are the crises that scare them and then shape them into the leaders that they become. So I asked Mark to reflect on this. We did have a moment where we were going through a recession in 2000, 2001. And the company was not stable. We were not profitable. We were not cash flow positive. Venture funding had frozen. And we had basically fired the person running the company. We had fired our CFO. And Parker and I were on our own. And I went into Parker's office and I'm like, We have about 100 employees. We're going to need to get, unfortunately, rid of 20 of them. And we're going to have to tell them. And I don't exactly know how we're going to do it. We're going to have to bring in a religious leader, give us some spiritual education on what to do correctly and how to do it morally and proper. But if we don't let go of these 20 people, Parker, there is not going to be a sales force in 30 days. That was a hard moment. And we had to take this aggressive action It was Parker was in tears. It was like really upsetting. 
but we had to do it. And um, that's business. You have to make tough decisions. You have to evolve. You have to change. At Salesforce, the only constant is change. And uh, by, and and 90 days later, we were profitable. We were cash flow positive. We started turning the company around. And then by 2002, 2003, things looked pretty good. By 2004, we were public five years after starting. And we had over $100 million in revenue. And we were growing at a phenomenal rate. And we were going. And uh, there are moments for every company where you're going to have to look at where you are, what's working. What's not working? You're going to have to make adjustments. You're going to have to change. Look, there's two mindsets you can have in business. You can have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. Another way to say it is you could have a you could have an expert's mind, you know, where you have few possibilities, or you could have a beginner's mind where you always have every possibility. It's critical for every entrepreneur, every CEO, every business leader, you know, really everyone. Maintain your beginner's mind. That's what I do in my mindfulness practice, my meditation practice. I trying to maintain my beginner's mind. I'm trying to let go of whatever is so I can be in my present moment reality. That's where I want to be. I want to be in the present moment and having a beginner's mind. Yeah. Um, and I know how important your meditation practice is to you. It was one of the very first things I learned about you. Um, so that brings us to this moment. And I'd love to hear a little bit about what it was like to lead Salesforce through the last half a year or so, because I'm sure that you probably never anticipated a pandemic when you went into business. Well, this is my first pandemic. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know about you, Jesse. Yep, first. And, you know, I mentioned that I went to an undergraduate business school. Well, we didn't have any classes on managing through the pandemic. I missed that by accident. So it's been a little bit of a challenge, but we've kind of pivoted Salesforce in the last six months around new operational values. So like, I'll give you a couple examples. One of the examples is we just had an all hands call. We're having them every Wednesday. People are so scared that we need to provide direction on a weekly basis. Like we have to get people from paralysis and into participation. Yeah. You know, so we have to like change our incentive structures. We have to reimagine our business. This is a huge motion participation. And that is something I think a lot of CEOs are still learning how to do. I'm still consulting with a lot of CEOs. It's something I do every single day. And they'll say, what are some of the things you're doing there? I'm like trying to get everyone to participate. And then immediately what you fall into is the next thing. One third of our employees at Salesforce are reporting that they're having mental health issues right now because this yeah. is such a complex time, so much stress, so much change, so much difficulty. So we created the Be Well Together series internally where we have all kinds of experts talking about not just meditation and mindfulness, but how to build resilience and grit and how to get through times like this. Experts from all over the world, when customers heard about it, they're like, well, can we attend? And I'm like, just make all this public. So if you go to YouTube, you'll see all the Be Well Together series. It's excellent content on how to be successful during times like this that we've put out there to help people to be well, because mental health has become such a huge thing. You know, Mark, it brings us back to the beginning of our conversation, this idea of stakeholder capitalism, expanding the nature of who we believe business to be accountable to. And um, 
when things get really, really rough, when there's a downturn or recession crisis in business, it is easy for businesses to do the wrong thing uh, or to make short-term decisions that hurt people in the environment. And you were very vocal very early on in the pandemic. I believe in March, you you spoke up and and you asked businesses to take a 90-day pledge not to lay people off for 90 days. Well, now we're past the 90 days. Um, and I, I'm curious, like looking back on that, uh, do you still feel like that was the right move? And then what needs to happen for businesses after the 90 days? Well, for the first 90 days, we really froze. We weren't sure what to do. I mean, one of the things we did was we bought 60 million pieces of PPE and distributed them to 300 hospitals. We, we went into a philanthropic mode. We started doing free implementations of Salesforce. We said we weren't going to do any layoffs, that so we were going to stop our business, normal business planning process. We were like, what is happening? Okay. And then after we've kind of got into a motion and kind of said, oh, this is just the new normal, we're not going back. That whatever world we were in is gone. We're in a new world. I'm in my house. You're in your house. This is the future, and we're in it. So now I'm like, we got to start making changes to our business. So, like for example, we're adding you know more than four thousand new jobs over the next six months. We'll go to fifty eight thousand jobs globally. But I can also see you know maybe in the next decade or well, call it even just short term one year. You know we probably want to add ten thousand jobs in the next year. But that doesn't mean that also I'm going to have to change, you know, or sunset a thousand jobs in areas that are no longer performing in the pandemic, that are no longer growth areas. We're back to normal business operations where you have to be changing, you have to be evolving, you have to be moving forward. And by the way, in the last 21 years, that's a normal process for us. You know, we're we're, of course, always sunsetting 5 to 10% of our jobs as part of our growth, reconstituting that, replacing people, you know, moving things around. We're back in that normal operational motion, but we're in this new work anywhere, sell anywhere, service anywhere, market anywhere, do commerce anywhere, do your podcast anywhere environment. I mean, that part's great, Mark. It means that we can be together right now. We can be together always. Uh, across the country. Um And I really hear what you're saying. And also, um, it is sort of an easy out to blame uh, or credit anything that happens in business in 2020 on the pandemic. As a last question, I guess I would ask, what do you think you will take forward from this pandemic? What has it taught you about business leadership? Well, I think that, you know, look, my job as a CEO, I have to motivate, I have to inspire, I have to create energy and excitement and you know, I also have to have gratitude for everything that's going on. And I think, you know, in this world today, you have to be empathy first. I mean, this is an empathy first world. This is a challenging time. And we have 54,000 employees working at home. We're not in our offices, you know, but at the same level, we just have this amazing quarter, 5.15 billion in revenue. We grew 29% in our quarter. We delivered our highest operating margin ever. Um, We had a 63% increase in seven-figure deals. We would never, I mean, it's incredible. We just entered the Dow at Salesforce. So that just 
reinforces to me, our values are bringing value. Our core products are helping our customers go through tremendous digital transformation, customer 360, and what we can offer customers is more important than ever. And when I look at our you know, critical customers who are doing so much with us, they need this transformation. We need to help them to connect with their customers in a whole new way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Mark, thanks for spending the time with us. Well, thanks, Jesse. It's always great being with you. I hope we're together soon. That's Mark Benioff, founder and CEO of Salesforce. And I really love this idea that businesses just should leave the world better than they found it, especially right now. So what's your take on the whole stakeholder versus shareholder debate? Where do you fall? I hope you'll let us know this week on Office Hours. Join me and Sarah Storm, our producer, during our weekly Wednesday coffee break. We'll go live as usual at 3 p.m. Eastern for my LinkedIn profile. To join us, follow me on LinkedIn or email us at hellomonday at linkedin.com. That's hellomonday at linkedin.com. We'll send you a link where you can find the show. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Oriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Victoria Taylor, Juliette Farreau, and Cassidy Jackson are some of our most important stakeholders. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You also heard music from Pottington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening.